My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today I am joined once again by Curtis Yarvin. Curtis Yarvin is a, a writer. He's also known by his pseudonym Mencius Moldbug. He is a tech entrepreneur and also the dark lord of the contemporary critique of liberalism from the right. Welcome back, Curtis. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure to be on the show. Um, I'm very excited to have you back. Um, and I wanted to discuss something specific. I usually kind of keep this as a kind of Johnny Carson style interview show for uh, for people on the dissident right. But this mm-hmm. time I have something a bit more specific because you've chosen to be a little bit more specific in one of your recent essays. Um, so I kind of wanted to hone in on this because rarely does anyone produce a manifesto in our in our circles? And usually yeah. if there is one, you should probably stay away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Manifestos are dangerous. Sorry, I'm being attacked by a dog here. Um, <laughs> the, um, um, here, my dog. Oh, what a cutie. <laughs> so actually, I'm, I'm joined by my cat in this podcast. I don't know if that's visible. All right, visible, all right. That's totally, yeah, I see that. I see the, the cat. The whole cats. monitor. Maybe, maybe they can make friends over the internet. All right. Um, um, yeah, I see. He's, he's a good dog. Um, he's not my dog, but he's a good dog. He's someone else's dog. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, you know, you know, it's, it's a scary thing to write a a manifesto of any kind, but you know, once, once you've, it's like heroin, once you've gotten into it, you can't get out of it. I don't know. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I I definitely uh, don't want to, you know, put you on the spot now, regurgitate the manifesto to us or anything, but I thought it was, um, um, it was an interesting crystallization of, of your thought. Um, I know it is, it's kind of hard to lay out ideas in a very specific way. It's actually quite a short essay by your standards as well. uh, And it's very to the point. Um, and it lays out some some of the principles of of Yarvinism, of I guess neo reaction. I don't know what what it's called now, neo monarchism. Um, and I think there um, some of them are I think not controversial, and some of them might be quite controversial, especially because this is an attempt to define the movement, a movement that some people are maybe fellow travelers with, some people are you know hangers on, some people are very deeply invested in. So Indeed. I I'd I really to... I really I really dislike the word movement. Uh, it reminds me of what I do in the bathroom. But um, the... <laughs> <laughs> yes, well then um, the uh, current <laughs> <laughs> current. There you go, current. It's still it's still a little reminiscent. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah. it's like yeah yeah. Have you ever noticed how you know I don't I don't know if this is true in your uh, in every language in the world, but um, it's very hard to come up when when it's time for an infant to go to bed it's very very hard to come up with euphemisms with words for putting your infant to bed which don't sound like euthanasia and so you're always like i'm gonna go put him down i'm gonna put him to sleep 
Yeah, yeah you're always worrying the guests. Like, you're, what you're did right. he mean? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the same with 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 movements. <laughs> the same with movements. Exactly. It's like it's always wherever you go. You know, you're always confronted by the specter of um, moving your bowels. But um, the. <laughs> All right, let's... Um... Yeah, let's let's dig into it. I mean, there are five principles to the manifesto. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the first one uh, is, is timelessness, which I think is a, is a wonderful word. Um, you know, kind of evokes the perennialism and, and things like that. And I, I, I do subscribe to the principle of timelessness. Uh, I mean, what what exactly about the, the deep right um, should be timeless? Well, I mean, I think we were all brought up in an era which considered itself special and unique in history. And of course, in many ways it is special and unique in history, largely because it's dealing with this sort of like, you know, you only, hopefully, well, you hopefully only get to have an industrial revolution once. I would rather not <laughs> have it again. Um, and, and so, you know, we've had this industrial technological revolution, which is special. And it, what's come along with the specialness is the sort of, it's very, very easy amidst the specialness to feel like, you're not really in history. You're above it. You've metamorph metamorphosed into something new, something different. Uh, you know, the old rules do not apply, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you get into this situation uh, where, you know, what you're actually doing is you're doing something very, very similar to something that sort of all regimes and societies have done, which is they all consider themselves unique. They all consider, so, you know, the Aztecs, you know, think of themselves as like the pinnacle of sort of, you know, magical evolution or whatever. And um, everybody is special in their own eyes. And so the fact that we're sort of special in this objective obvious way you can say wow we're really different from you know the romans or the you know the spain of philip v or whatever um charles v um and um i can't believe i said philip v i'm not even sure there was a philip v um but um you know uh, uh, i said charles v because charles v was sort of had the last closest thing to really a pan-European empire. Well, Charles V and Napoleon, right? Napoleon thought of himself as special. Charles V, however, saw himself as basically part of this very long tradition of Christian and ultimately Roman civilization. And, you know, the ability to basically see yourself as a continuous part the present as a continuous part of the past and respect the idea that maybe in some ways the rules have changed and everything has changed, but in some ways it really hasn't. And figuring out the ways in which sort of the universal verities of, you know, the historical process, the sort of truths of politics, the truths of human nature basically haven't changed is something that's really, really hard for us. And it's really, really easy to basically sort of get into this situation where 
we're so unique that we have absolutely no respect for those who came before us. And we've like learned, you know, we've learned that our, our, our parents, our grandparents, our great, great parents and, and so on and so forth are really just have nothing to add to us. And this is, I mean, especially true if you basically say this is an attitude or a way of thinking that's sort of been obvious and easy ever since it sort of became apparent that there were things going on in human history that had never happened before. So maybe in some senses, like the last 250 years, more or less. And so in the sort of last, you have this sort of last quarter millennium of kind of utopian chiliasm, really, you know, that gives us the American Revolution, it gives us the French Revolution, and it gives us this, you know, the sort of feeling of the year zero. And we're kind of living inside this year zero, and we're starting to basically notice that many things do not seem to be getting better. They seem to be getting actually worse. Sorry, dog. Um, boss. Um, and, um, and it's like maybe there are things that we're doing that our ancestors you know, we, we laugh at these people all the time. Maybe there are things that we're doing where they would laugh at us. And just and so the ability to just inhabit the past a little bit and say, what would they think of us? Which was basically sort of not even just normal, like the first and most obvious reflex of sort of all long-lasting societies, you know, is how would our ancestors judge us? And we're very unused to answering that question and we're answering that question sort of even to sort of respect our ancestors enough to ask that question it's like what would our great great grandparents think of us so it's like well you know they didn't have antibiotics so you know or, or iphones so who cares what they thought you know i got my iphone you know it's like basically <laughs> the you know haha great great grandpa you know check out my iphone you didn't have that did you right you know and 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 like this is this attitude is far from being a sort of an attitude of kind of moving into the future and becoming something new, this is actually a very childlike attitude. And it's a very immature and weak attitude. And so when you basically show people, no, actually, you can feel a sense of continuity with the past, you can ask the question, asked in the piece I wrote for Unheard the other day, I'm just like, what would Elizabeth I think of Elizabeth II? And I'm like, I'm willing to bet that hardly anyone in Great Britain has asked that question seriously. Um, you know, maybe Elizabeth herself has. Maybe she hasn't. She doesn't appear to be a super thoughtful person, to be honest. But um, the, uh, who the hell knows? And um, she's been dressed up as the queen for so long that she actually thinks she, she is the queen. You know, and to like sort of untangle that and ask, you know, it just, it gives you this very, very powerful tool for kind of standing outside the place that you're standing and sort of looking objectively at the world. And once you start doing that, you start seeing just all of these places where you're like, this is a shit show painted gold, you know? And um, I mean, I was like, if you even just ask this moderate 
question of like, what would the city fathers of San Francisco in the 1950s think of San Francisco today? They'd be like, oh my God, what have you done? Right. And, and like, they would just look around and they would be like, cool cars, cool, cool iPhones. Definitely. If we can bring these back to the past, we would like that. Oh my God, what have you done? And the, like, there are, I mean, one of the worst sort of ways of, or worst thoughts of coping with that reality is to say, hey, maybe the iPhones and cars and all of this stuff are actually related to the problem. Maybe like just the fact that our lives have become so easy in this way, that way, and the other way basically have turned us into really weak people. And that's something that people don't really want to hear. Um, you know, the question I often ask is, um, do you think you're a better person than your great than the average of your four grandparents? What about your eight great grandparents? And people are like, what? What do you even mean? What do you mean, good person? You mean, but, but less I, racist I, for sure. Less, I care about climate change, right? You know, and it's like basically like the the sort of concepts of virtue and personal excellence and what it meant to be to cultivate oneself as a human being that our great great grandparents had are not even concepts that we would recognize. And so, if we don't sort of recognize these concepts. Like, it's like you're passing a test, you're trying to take a test that you haven't even studied for. You haven't, you're not even in the class, right? And, and, and so there's just, there's a, there's a huge amount of power that comes from reconnecting with the past in this way. And, and it's a really, it's almost like people are in some ways sort of somewhat immunized against this power by the sort of feeling of pervasive contempt for the past, which is sort of very similar. It's a very parochial way of feeling. At the risk of repeating myself, it's like, imagine you're, you know, in some very parochial, very small time society, you know, you're in a little Polish town in 1682, and you're basically like, um, you know, Roquansk is the whole world and, you know, everything outside Roquansk is, you know, and, and, and it's like, actually, like, you think that you're the pinnacle of creation, but this attitude proves that you have a very, very small mind. And so just as a tool, basically, any way of showing these very, very proud, self-obsessed people um, especially millennials. There's something about millennials, man. Uh, I'm sorry, you're not a you're a millennial. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but it's okay. You're 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 you know, a recovering millennial, I guess. Uh, and um, my fiance is a millennial. You know, she's wonderful. You know, but but it, it's hard. <laughs> we're, we're refugees from from millennialism yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it right, is. right, right, right. There's there's definitely there's definitely a Gen X sort of Zoomer kind of you know um, connection that seems to exist, but. Uh, skipping the millennials, but, um, but, you know, you say to millennials, basically you give them these kinds, kinds of forbidden thoughts and maybe they're a little too old for new thoughts, but maybe they're not. 
and you can sort of see their brains working. They're kind of immunized against it, but you can, they're immunized against a very sort of stale presentation of it. And if you can get past these kinds of stale presentations, you can really rock people a little bit with this idea. And I think they need to be rocked. So that's, that's my timelessness uh, spiel. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh yeah I, I I completely agree, and I also agree with the fact that millennials uh, can can be rocked. We we can be saved. There are there are ways to, to get to us. Um, you can you can save anyone, um, and with enough power. The the next point on 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 the manifesto is is neutral, and I can see why this one might be a little bit more contested. Yeah, this one is a little more contested, and this one I definitely got some pushback from sort of the more culture warrior side of my my audience. And I think that it's like I I have a sort of, uh, do you know the Shakespeare play uh, Coriolanus? Um, I sort of, I grew up as a child of not really the American elite elite, but, you know, uh, my parents both went to Ivy League colleges. My father was a, a State Department officer. I went to an Ivy League college. And so feeling like the part of this sort of um, global ruling class, if you will, feels very natural to me, just socially and culturally. Um, you know, I fit in with these people much better than I fit in with, I mean, I fit in reasonably well with, you know, average American Republicans, but it's sort of still clear that in a sense, they're not really my people. And so, of course, this reminds me of Coriolanus, in which um, Coriolanus is a Roman aristocrat who, um, you know, gets really tired of being, a, you know, he has a bad experience with the mob. And he's like, you know, fuck these Roman motherfuckers. I'm going to go and join... Um, Rome's hereditary barbaric enemies, the Volskians, right? And so he becomes the leader of the Volskians. And um, I mean, it's a tragedy. It doesn't end well, right? And so, you know, the sort of the, the, the Coriolanus temptation um, is very, very real. And I think that a lot of the people who've been attracted to my work sort of feel a similar kind of alienation from the global ruling class. And others are just like, you know, have always been enemies of it culturally and by nature. And the, like, I think the sort of mistake of, um, there are sort of many kind of mistakes that, we can learn that the 20th century made that we have an opportunity to learn from. And one of them is that, you know, when the Volskians actually do storm Rome and basically succeed and kind of the middle class um, establishes the true middle class, the kind of uncultured commoner middle class establishes a sort of an actual domination over the sort of social and cultural aristocracy. And I always have to stop because people are so when I, you know, when I talk about class, people are so used to this, like, you know, vulgar Marxist 
take on class in which class means money. Class does not mean money. Um, you know, it's like uh, <laughs> a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I was a grad student at Berkeley, uh, you know, on a, you know, $13,000 a year stipend or something. And I was talking to some other grad student who uh, described themselves, uh, you know, in the same situation who described themselves as, quote, poor. And I was like, no, you're not poor, you're broke. <laughs> These are different <laughs> things, uh, you know, and the uh, and and that you don't know that they are different things, you know, um, and and so class is about who looks up to who and look, who looks down on who, and when who when class systems get broken, it's not who looks up to who, but who resents whom, and you have this sort of dynamic of. Even when you're in this sort of, when you're in a sort of class war, it becomes in a sort of healthy class system. It's like the lower class looks up to and aspires to and respects the upper class, and the upper class um, loves and admires and cares for and protects the lower classes. And this is sort of the ideal. And then when this ideal breaks down you have this situation in which the lower class um, resents the upper class and wants to destroy them. And this sense, and, and, and there's sort of real hate there. And then there's a different, slightly different flavor of hate, which is not resentment, but contempt that comes down from the upper class to the lower class. And, you know, this you can see this contempt like, this con once you sort of learn to see this sort of contempt for what we in America call the flyover states or the red states or whatever, you see it just pouring off of the upper class in just every possible way. And it's really, they're extremely free with it. And once you basically have sort of learned to make the analogy between that emotion and you know what we call racism you're just like holy shit this is this is real hate right you know exactly you can see it bubbling up um and just imagine imagine if you directed this attitude toward the people that you're not allowed to hate you know and and like you know um you know they drown you in a bucket in five minutes uh you drown yourself in a bucket and so this and and like that's a really poisonous and and destructive emotion and it's really easy to sort of mirror that poisonous and destructive emotion with the sort of the corresponding moment you know feeling of resentment you know which is just like wow hey there are these nobles there that like think they're better than us but like you know they kind of scream and gurgle a little bit when we poke our pitchforks into them let's poke a little deeper oh oh, oh that felt good didn't that feel good oh you know and so you have this kind of you know and and there's a kind of pleasure in resentment that turns into sort of the pleasure of conflict is always kind of a pleasure and sort of when you see kind of the hatred of both sides, you can see the feeling that a Polish knight in 1350 had in like smiting the head off some damned peasant rebel and just like, that feels good. Like, look at this little shit, right? Wow. Oh, he's in two pieces. Oh, uh, yeah. He always wanted to be that way. Um, should have should have been using that pitchfork on, hey, uh, you know, a little peasant. Uh, you know, I'm glad uh, you thought you could uh, take on a knight, but, uh, you know, that gave me some practice. And, you know, there's, there's just like, 
this pleasure in combat and what we really, you know, have and what I would say has been created by our political system is really the Western world is just used to existing and especially America, which everyone imitates, is used to existing in this condition of basically a cold civil war and which is just a horrible, horrible way to exist. And, you know, when you look at sort of the history of Republican institutions, what you find is that, I mean, the sort of, to take the American founders and especially the Federalist Papers as sort of the beginning of democracy in America is very, very incorrect because the founding... 1789 in America is really a second founding, and the Federalists are writing in a context in which basically government by mob has really failed. So, I mean, there's this period in American history, which is the um, basically from 1776 to 1789, where um, you have the Continental Congress, the Congress of the Confederation, um, sort of all of it except the precursors to the Constitution has been kind of airbrushed out of our history. And it's been airbrushed out of our history because it was a complete shit show um, and, um, and it sucked. And so when you look at the Federalist Papers and their view toward this problem, which had already appeared, they are constantly, the Constitution of 1789 is kind of saying, how can we establish something like a monarchy in the U.S. with George Washington as its kind of ceremonial monarch and Alexander Hamilton as its working CEO? This was the purpose of sort of the constitutional coup of 1789. And everything that sort of didn't lead up to that, it's like when we read about the revolution, you would almost think that Washington was a military dictator because you're thinking only about sort of the military aspect of the revolution, which is itself kind of a joke because the British aren't really trying to win the war, but different conversation. And you forget about all of these problems he has with the Continental Congress, which is this ridiculous revolutionary shit show, which is already showing sort of tendencies that sort of are reminiscent of tendencies of the French Revolution, and we managed to hold it together and not have Jacobins here. But um, that was uh, that was sort of like those tendencies of mob violence were present, whether present in American history going back to like the 17th century. People haven't heard of like Leisler's Rebellion in New York, and like the whole sort of pre constitutional pre-United States period is very, very airbrushed. But when you look at what Alexander Hamilton wrote about, quote, faction, unquote, um, it was clear that basically sort of Lockean thinkers of the time regarded factional politics as a horrific abortion. And they were like, no, actually, we want the people to sort of deliberate as one on our common interests. Um, we do not want a, like a cold civil war. And they basically knew of the situation of a cold civil war. They had cold civil wars that sometimes got a little bit hot. And so this sort of idea of um, 
sort of republic, the sort of republican ideal of the people coming together as one, um, usually has not in democratic history been realized. And moreover, we've sort of learned to regard like one party states with a great deal of suspicion. We expect this conflict. And it was really Marx who basically looked at the situation where these sort of ideals of like, you know, sort of LARPing Greece and Rome turned into this cold civil war. And people regarded that at the time as kind of a failure and a breakdown of the system. And they were sort of always being like, no, the ideal is that we're one people and we come together as one. And Marx turns this around and is like, no, this is natural. This is necessary. This is good. You know, the class struggle is, you know, basically right. And it actually, if anything, needs to get more violent. And so people are very used to like this situation of a cold civil war. And they have sort of put themselves in a situation where they expect this war to go on basically forever, because there's simply no way that either of these classes wins and actually destroys the other. It's a ridiculous concept. It, moreover, like you can't really have an upper class without a lower and middle class. Um, so unless, until we get to the point of like, really, you know, hey, wow, you know, AIs and robots can replace everyone who, you know, works with their hands or pushes paper or drives a bus or whatever. And, you know, that is kind of a fantasy in the upper class, you know, the fully automated luxury communism. They don't really think of that as a fantasy of extirpating the lower classes and replacing them with robots. But, uh, they wouldn't necessarily dislike that outcome. Um, And then when you look at basically the sort of lower class fantasies of destroying the aristocracy and destroying sort of aristocratic ways of being, aristocratic ways of thinking, which of course are all represented by blue state people today, um, you know, you actually do have sort of historical examples of that from the 20th century. And those historical examples don't really end very well. In some ways, a good sort of picture of this is presented by Russian history in the 19th century, because at the beginning of the 19th century, you have one Russian elite. You have basically sort of this traditional society where you have, you know, a cosmopolitan upper class that mainly speaks French, and it sort of are considered themselves citizens, not of the world, but of Europe. And you have, um, then you have this sort of various lower classes, various kind of middle classes, Jewish merchants, whatever. And by the end of the 19th century, sort of the old aristocracy has become more abundant in a way, and you have this new intelligentsia. And, the, and you have a very, like, the old aristocracy has become this kind of stale remnant of the past. And you have this intelligentsia that wants power and that is sort of so alienated from everything outside itself that it kind of wants to reconstruct the peasants and the working class along these ridiculous lines that don't really work very well for the peasants and the ruling class. But I mean, communism in Russia is, you know, is a movement of, you know, the disgruntled upper classes. It is not a movement of the lower classes. 
and 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 it also sort of ends very badly. And you're like, okay, here is this problem. Here is this situation which is ugly as it stands and could easily get much uglier. And it can get ugly in both directions. And it can get ugly in the like the kulaks, you know, exterminate the upper classes. I mean, this is, there's this real sense like Nazism of aristocide. And the um you know, it's true that the most of the Jews that, you know, Hitler has killed are not upper class Jews, they're shtetl Jews, but like the Jews that, you know, Hitler hated and the reasons he hated them were basically hating this kind of new cosmopolitan Weimar type aristocracy. And so there's this real sense of like, okay, when you look at Hitler and Stalin, you know, Stalin basically takes power as part of the intelligentsia and he kills the kulaks. Uh, Hitler takes power and he either kills or domesticates or, you know, expatriates the intelligentsia. I mean, obviously, there's this huge movement of the proto-globalists out of Germany when Hitler takes power. And Hitler is very much taking power in the name of basically the petty bourgeoisie kulak class. And you're just like, neither of these things ends well. And the example that I always go back to when sort of resolving this conflict is the late days of the Roman Republic, because the Roman Republic had a very, very similar problem. It had what was sometimes called the conflict of the orders that basically had been going on pretty much for the historically remembered life of the Roman Republic. Maybe there's like a mythical past in which this wasn't a thing. But when Roman history becomes unmythical, here you have this conflict between the uh, patricians and the Publians. Um, Siri thinks I'm talking to it. Um, Here you have this conflict between the patricians and the Plebeians. And it's like the then later sort of these classes metamorphose and it becomes a conflict between, you know, the Optimates and the Populares. And it's still basically the same thing, although the old class sort of, the old like sort of literally hereditary class lines have been a little blurred and it's very, very ugly and it degenerates into civil war. And so you have these kinds of proto-Caesar-like figures before the end of the Roman Republic, you have Marius and Sulla. And Marius and Sulla are kind of the Hitler and Stalin in some ways of the late Roman Republic, where they sort of, Marius is from the Populares and Sulla is from the Optimates, the aristocrats. And they obtain power and they like smash their enemies in very brutal ways. Well, for the time, there were no Holocaust or gulags, but um, certainly, you know, the thing to do if you were Marius or Sulla when you came to power was to destroy your hereditary enemies. And, And that was the thing that you used. So you governed basically when Marius and Sulla came to power, they governed as the leader of their parties. And so the civil war is not really suppressed in these kinds of one-party states. And, and, and they sort of become very, very ugly. And then when Caesar and Augustus come to power, they do something very, very different, which is the way in which they inaugurate the empire is to basically govern as the leaders of all of Rome. 
and not of a party or a faction. And they basically do this so well that this 400-year-old conflict is just like, it disappears. It's gone. And it disappears, and you basically realize that this conflict is not something that comes out of the essential structure of Roman society. I mean, of course, it's replaced by other problems under the empire. The empire has diseases of its own, but the class struggle is not one of them. And the, like, the sense in which you look at Roman history, you're just like, this, not only does this Republican system not solve this class conflict, but it's actually causing the class conflict is, and it's causing the class conflict by basically you have these two parties in a room and each of them is trying to fundamentally trying to defend itself from the other. The and, and in sort of red versus blue thinking in America, the overwhelming feeling of each class is we have to hit them before they hit us. And, and, and so there's sort of like the idea of a regime in which basically, you know, America's class wars and race wars and gender wars and all of this stuff. I mean, you know, people really passionately, many people in this country sort of really passionately believe that there's like a natural battle between men and women, which is just fucking bonkers, you know, and, and I mean, it's completely fucking bonkers. I mean, the idea of like class war and race war, like at least has some sense behind it. Right. But there's never actually been a, a, a hot war of the sexes. It's a ridiculous, you know, uh, parody. And, and the idea of sort of forgetting the essential aspect of politics, you know, the sort of Carl Schmitt struggle between friend and enemy. It's like this whole system, which was supposed to be like deliberatively produce the will of the people has just ended in this fucking class war. And so when you basically f think about future regimes and political systems and what have you, and you're basically imagining something in which one of these classes suppresses the other, you're imagining a fantasy that can sort of never be realized. Whereas when you imagine when your fantasy is about this conflict being over, that has been realized in the past, that has been done. And, you know, and it's like this just immediately very, very desirable vision. It's just like you just look at, you're just like, what if there was no war? What if the war was over? What if like we didn't, we weren't trying to destroy each other? And so what that translates into at a very, very concrete level is that when people in the red states sort of look at the kind of what they see as sort of the cultural corruptions of the aristocracy, um, what they have to realize is that like what they really deserve to hate and fear and what is really not acceptable in any sort of historical or moral sense from my perspective is, and I think the perspective of sort of any reasonable person is this sort of idea of cultural hegemony in which basically you know, good Christian parents in Arkansas or whatever are basically have to send their kids to these schools that are controlled 
by their hereditary enemies with basically a cultural program that seems almost designed to destroy their societies and to like damage their families and sort of damage these relationships. And I believe that sort of one of the kind of fundamental, if you have a polycultural society, you're not Iceland in which everybody looks the same and acts the same and thinks the same. Um, America's definitely not Iceland. I'm pretty sure in that, of that. And the idea that of, of sort of winning by imposing cultural hegemony is an idea that is only tenable for the aristocracy. And it's not even really ten tenable. It's a horrible fucking idea. All you're doing is basically when you try to sort of destroy these cultures and like the vision of the aristocracy at its most benign is to turn everyone to in, into aristocrats. And that's kind of a beautiful vision in a way, but it's also a very hegemonic vision. It's a very imperialist vision. It's a very, like, it's very easy to sort of take these intellectual tools that we've, we've sort of grown up with and kind of turn them on this and basically be like, no, this is actually hegemony. And, but if you reverse that vision and you say, okay, well, our vision of victory is to basically take the children of, you know, the professors in Bethesda or whatever, we're going to make them Christians. We're going to make them believe that um, living in the way that we consider decent in Arkansas is the only way to live. And we're going to like harass you and punish you and impose our drug laws on you and impose our vision of sexuality on you and all of these things. I'm like, I have to say no to that as well. I believe that that's sort of like, first of all, this is something and I sort of say this to my, my Red State listeners, this is something that doesn't really matter to you. Just as it doesn't really matter to the denizens of Bethesda to sort of turn the Amish transgender, um, it shouldn't really matter to you that basically these people are like, uh, yes, actually, it's perfectly wonderful if my uh, you know, daughter sterilizes herself permanently and turns into an imitation of a man. It's none of your business, man. You know, and like the and 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 if you make it your business, you're basically turning this sort of defensive thing, which is meant to protect you into an offensive thing. And you're basically all of the sort of fading class solidarity and class pride of your enemies who you're trying to defeat you're actually restoring that because you're making them feel like in order to defend themselves, they have to attack you. And one of the things that you see, like you see this in sort of dysfunctional relationships, you look at any dysfunctional relationship and from afar and you're like, each of these parties fundamentally is defending themselves against the other. And that's, you know, again, when you come back to the red versus blue class war, you're like the mindset of each of these classes is fundamentally defensive. I grew up with this upper class, you know, sort of American communist really mindset in which um, the um, the like when you're part of an arist aristocratic governing class, any aristocracy feels being in the minority very, very acutely. And you're like, you're 2% of the population, 5% of the population, maybe even 10% of the population. And even if the political system you're living under isn't nominally a democracy, you're just haunted by the fact that you could be skewered on those pitchforks at any time. And you have to hang together and like smash the kulaks or you will be smashed. 
And like, this is just a terrible way to live. It's a way to live that sort of brings out this kind of hatred and contempt, which is ultimately a defensive contempt, just as sort of the, you know, the emotion of resentment is also fundamentally defensive. And so sort of concluding that the only way out of this problem is a certain kind of unity and a certain kind of unity can't really be achieved by the political system that we have basically forces you to look for, well, how is this done? How can this be done? How was this done in the past? And you basically get right back to Caesar and Augustus with that. And so Caesar and Augustus have the same quality of neutrality. And it's sort of a neutrality. It's kind of a neutrality from above. It's a like, well, these people don't really understand each other, but they're both my people and I respect them all. And they're going to find a way to live together. And like once they no longer have a way to hit each other, all these conflicts go away. And mm. basically... But while you have a political system that basically gives each of these classes a way to smite each other, there's going to be smiting. And this is sort of one of my like strongest beliefs about sort of the dysfunctional character of this system. And when you think about victory in terms of hegemony and in terms of basically creating a regime in the image of your own class, I'm like... That, uh, you know, has been an outcome. But if you're going to think this way and basically not have the determination to do what that kind of hegemony means and you don't think you have the right to do what that kind of hegemony means and, with, you know, you don't are not capable of the kind of violence that that kind of hegemony implies and you're definitely not. And... um then just don't think that way. It's pointless. It's, it's counterproductive. And what this basically leads me to is a kind of a style of politics where rather than trying to um, destroy your enemies, you're actually trying to seduce your enemies. And there's certain ways in which they really don't like that. Um, but they don't like that sort of in a different way. The way in which they don't like that sort of causes them to want to go away. It doesn't cause them to want, you know, it's like causes them to want to get out of the field of your Jedi mind tricks. It doesn't really cause them mostly to want to fight back. So it's also kind of tactically optimal in a way. And it just works much better in my experience than this kind of confrontational approach to sort of the class war. And what you see in all conflicts is that basically each side understands the flaws of its opponents very, very well. They become excellent critics of their enemies. And so blue state America is an excellent critic of red state America and vice versa. Neither of them really understand themselves, you know, which is also typical in a conflict. If you want to understand both sides, often the easiest place to start is like the the view of each side of its enemy. And um, it's like, if you want to understand um, Nazi Germany, go to the Allies. And if you want to understand the Allies, go to Nazi Germany. And um, except for, you know, there's a sort of hugely flawed propaganda premise in both. You know, the Nazis uh, think that their enemies are controlled by the Jews, which just isn't true. 
and their enemies think the Nazis' goal is to take over the world, which sort of isn't really true either. And um, other than that, though, like we have this excellent, excellent understanding of the Third Reich. And if the Third Reich had won the war, they would have an excellent understanding of you know the communists and 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 the democrats um but we won the war and so we don't understand ourselves very very well at all but gaining sort of this kind of integrated perspective where you're like okay you know sort of both of these sides have these kinds of flaws and you can't really fix these flaws by dominating them you almost Many of these flaws themselves are results of sort of the conflict. There's a lot of like, like a lot of the sort of cultural, weird cultural distortions of the left seem to me to derive a lot of their power from the feeling that they're sort of subjugating the right or attacking the right. And of course, vice versa. And, you know, so if you sort of manage to like turn these things off, Again, it's sort of you you generate this kind of enormous amount of kind of power because after a civil war, nobody wants to go back to the civil war. And so you're sort of always looking at ways of like, okay, can you imagine this kind of political transition in a sense where people are like, nobody wants to go back because that's kind of the criterion of success in a way. And that clearly involves ending your cold civil war on the basis of peace and not on the basis of domination. And we're going on to the next points of the, the manifesto. Um, I mean, on, on the neutrality point, I mean, that's probably one of the, the most controversial ones, but actually um, it probably in the, in the great scheme of things might be a little less controversial than uh, the vitalism point. Uh, and mm. Not necessarily because, you know, vitalism is, is controversial, but because it is a bit vague. Well, you know, vitalism is a funny term. I got a letter from a historian saying, you know, oh, you're misusing this word. It means slightly different things to different people. And I'm like, you know, it meant various vague things to various people in the past. Um, what I mean is sort of close enough to it. And it's a good word. And um, what I essentially mean by vitalism is I place it in contrast to what one of my favorite writers, Albert J. Nock, called economism. So economism is the implicit belief in the 19th and 20th century that the purpose of um, human life is pleasure. It's essentially hedonism, it's utilitarianism. There's this notion in economics of utility function. And, you know, the idea is that the purpose of human life, in peacetime at least, is to have fun and pleasure. And we can actually measure the amount of pleasure produced by measuring what consumers spend in the economy because they're spending to satisfy their desires and some of their desires are needs like food and water. And others are pleasure, like going to amusement parks. That's all on the spectrum. But if you spent $10, you have $10 worth of you know, desire satisfaction. And so what we talk about when we talk about growth, as we're basically trying to measure economic growth, is we're trying to measure the amount of utility, the amount of fun that the economy is producing. And we're like, it's 10% more fun this year because they spent 10% more dollars. 
oh, wait, that's just inflation. Let's correct for the quality of the goods. So the quality, you know, this year's iPhone is better than last year's iPhone. So that's economic growth. And you have this curious unstated assumption in all of this, which is that the purpose of economic life is to generate as much pleasure as possible. And, you know, even in, in the world of measuring GDP, you're like, you know, should spending on cocaine be included in the GDP? Well, that's like pure pleasure. Like, wow, you could have the optimal economy by turning your whole economy, feed people just bread and water and then give them fentanyl, right? And so bread, water, and heroin is sort of the, uh, the, the economic system that is the reductio ad absurdum of um, the system. And this system sort of works in, it sort of comes out of a kind of tradition of government that says that um, government, the quality of government can be measured, what government does can be sort of mechanized. You can, uh, you know, my favorite writer, Thomas Carlyle, called it a government carried on by steam. Somehow this sort of, this, this machine can be automated or controlled or managed scientifically to produce the maximum amount of pleasure. And this is a very foreign concept, I think, to sort of ancestors before us who would be like, wait a second, you know, the purpose of life is not pleasure. The purpose of life is to fulfill the promise of being a human being. And if you're living on bread and water and playing video games and, you know, mainlining heroin, that's not life. That's not, you were not becoming who you were meant to be. And the purpose of life is to flower as a human being it's to be challenged and succeed as a human being. It's to do the hardest things that you can do. Um, and of course, in traditional kind of utilitarian economic theory, for example, work is considered disutility. Nobody wants to do work. It has negative utility. Therefore, if you could, for example, get robots to eliminate work, then you could live without working, which would be paradise. And... I'm like, no, I don't think that this is paradise. Um, I think that actually responding to challenges and solving problems and doing hard things are part of what make you human. Now you could say, okay, you'll have fully automated luxury communism and then you climb mountains or whatever. Yeah, some people, it's kind of sterile, you know, and the sense of actually becoming a producer of value and producing things that other human beings want and using all of your talents in that process of production um, is uh, like to me an essential part of, of humanity. Um, when people talk about vitalism, they're more likely to talk about, you know, the body as another example. Like, you know, you're basically, if you're you know, this sort of couch potato smoking weed and playing, playing video games. Uh, also, your body is rotting. And, you know, are we here to rot our bodies or are we here to make ourselves excellent? And a vitalist would say, across the board, we are here to become excellent. And if you are living your life as a human being in order to experience pleasure rather than to become excellent, you are basically living like a child. 
And what we see all around us is this sort of strange, I think, you know, in some ways, when we talked about timelessness, how our ancestors perceive us, I think they would be very puzzled to come across our society a sort of a whole world of people behaving like children, dressing in some ways like children, and being like, you know, you just have these cities full of overgrown children. And the fewer people, the more that technology eliminates labor, the more that technology sort of eliminates the power of labor to make us amazing, to challenge us, to make us, you know, who we should be. And so I think that, you know, like when you look at the end result of a society based on economism, based on utilitarianism, you have this, you know, weird country full of robots and overgrown pudgy babies. <laughs> and, and, and like a society of overgrown pudgy babies is not a happy, healthy one. And historically, when societies have gotten anywhere near this point, they've typically been slaughtered by barbarian tribes. And, you know, that's, of course, bad. It's bad to slaughter. Nobody should slaughter. Nobody should be slaughtered. There should not be any slaughtering, you know. But you also get this kind of sense when you see these decadent societies falling to these, you know, more like virile barbarians that kind of, you know, as they say... um, Nature is healing, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it's hard to avoid that sense that now that we're not, we don't need to fear at least external barbari- barbarians. We still have a little bit of internal barbarism and maybe that's what gets us. Uh, Rome had that too, actually. Um, you're like, this is actually a society in decline because the quality of the human beings is in decline. And you can't really measure the quality of a human being in any particular way. And so to say that we're going to have a scientific government that uses scientific policies to improve the quality of human beings, well, you can't measure that. And since you can't measure that, I mean, maybe in a, in a sense, you can measure it if you had active slave markets, right? Now, what is your quality? Mm-hmm. How much are you worth? Yeah, the, the Robin Hansen method. The Robin Hansen method, right. You know, that's a somewhat crude me- method of measuring human quality. It has its, you know, it has its attractions. I don't really endorse it. Um, short of that, you basically can't really measure. It's like, you know, the um, it, there's this funny expression in English where you talk about what someone is worth, like, you know, so-and-so is worth X, right? You know, and it's, it's a quantitative, it's really how much money do they have. But the real question of what is a human being worth is actually a very hard question that demands an aesthetic judgment. And and these aesthetic judgments are easy. It's very easy to basically look at the couch potato and the mountain climber and say that the mountain climber is a more whole human being than the couch potato. These are not hard aesthetic judgments, typically, Mm -hmm. or at least a fairly weak sense of aesthetic judgment will allow you to discern that there's something really, really wrong with experiencing pleasure in this way, right? But, you know, you basically, we've gotten to the point where technology has taken this idea that used to be, okay, striving hard to produce material prosperity when it was a challenge and it was still quite a bit of a challenge for much of the industrial revolution. Um, It's like, okay, even 
economism kind of produces more or less the same results as vitalism in the same way that like Newtonian physics in a lot of situations produces more or less the same results as Einsteinian physics. Nonetheless, Newton is wrong and Einstein is right. And the sense that basically in our current society, especially in America, where we figured out how to live without producing anything by basically um, pushing around pieces of paper and sending them to China where people actually work is, uh, you know, really, I mean, we've sort of developed fully automated luxury communism in America already, except that instead of robots, we have workers in Chinese factories, right? And, you know, we'll eventually we'll replace them with robots, maybe, I don't know, you know, um, but for now, it's a decent, you know, we have robots who cut our lawns, you know, they're called illegal immigrants, you know, it's almost the same thing, right? You know, and, and the, like, the sense of this causing us to rot away as human beings is very, very visible. It's like when I was a kid, I'm old enough to have seen basically real societal changes going on in my lifetime. And one of the changes was that when I was a kid in high school, I had a weird high school experience, but for people with normal high school experiences, it was absolutely normal to take shit jobs when you were in high school for pocket money. And those shit jobs doing food prep at McDonald's or whatever taught you a lot of things and made you basically, uh, you know, even if you're going to go on to, you know, study psychology at Harvard, working at food prep and McDonald's is good for you. Right. And, um, no more, no more. Now it's all, it's all immigrant, basically slave labor. And, um, you know, one of the interesting points of abolitionists before, the Civil War that they used to make that really nobody hears now when they talk about slavery, abolitionists used to say that slavery is actually bad for the master because basically it creates, you know, this basically, you know, sort of hardworking Northern industrialists looked at these like lazy appearing Southern planters and were like, you can't even lift a finger. You can't even wash a plate. Like you need slave labor to do this for you. And this labor is being performed by people who are not ultimately part of your social network. They're not really part of your society. And so you have this sort of society of like, you know, in a way they're looking at this kind of planter society and they're saying, well, this is fully automated luxury communism, except for slaves instead of robots. And this is bad, not just for the slaves, but for you. And I think there's some, maybe that, that argument had a little bit of self-interest mixed in with it, but it, um, um, you know, there's also some truth in it. And I think we're seeing a lot of that truth today when we look at basically just how, I guess I'm not ashamed to use the word decadent, how decadent our societies have become. And the idea of basically relying having a society that's sort of an economic whole and that it does not have um, a deficit of, um, it, 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 it does all its own shit work. And the idea that shit work is actually good for you is totally alien to the way that we think about the purpose of economic life today. And not only is shit work, you know, even shit work is good for you, but shit work is actually kind of bad. I mean, you know, you don't want to transform a human being into a machine 
it's like the ideal sort of form of labor for many, many people is basically artisanal. It's basically, it's like a craft in which whatever level of human creativity you have can be employed and can give pleasure to other human beings. And one of the sort of examples I like to point out sort of that flies in the face of um, fully automated luxury communism is there's this British actor named Daniel Day-Lewis. You might have seen him in My Left Foot and, uh, you know, um, uh, um, uh, what's the... Paul Thomas Anderson film. There will, there be, will blood. be blood. Yeah. There will be blood. You know, uh, Daniel Day Lewis is, uh, you know, as you can see by how many names he has, he's uh, he's an aristocrat. He's the he's the son of the aristocratic poet C Cecil Day Lewis, and he's a very successful actor. Daniel Day Lewis took a couple of years off of his career to apprentice to a high end Italian shoemaker. He took a couple of years off of like the career that everyone wants to basically learn to make fucking shoes. And, you know, the thing is, if making shoes is good enough for Daniel Day-Lewis or can be good enough for Daniel Day-Lewis, it's good enough for basically anyone. Um, it's probably not good enough for Einstein, but it's probably good enough for you and me. And um, so, you know, the sense of basically it's better from Daniel Day-Lewis's perspective to spend two years making shoes than to spend two years basically jacking off, smoking weed, and hitting his PlayStation, as I'm sure he has entirely the capacity to do, is, um, you know, really, I think that tells us something about human nature and the purpose of life, society, and government. And that's what I mean by vitalism. This is essentially the, the, the main question that's, you know, Provoking a lot of schisms, a lot of ideas, a lot of things, and um, and on the so-called deep right dissident right, um, and it is the the main difference here is between the the religious factions here and then the people who are um, either you know secular or or pagan or some would even call themselves vitalist, but I don't think it's necessarily yeah. the same. It's it's not necessarily entirely the same, but I think that basically my concept at least is kind of broad enough to include all of these things you can basically yeah you know, I my you question can, you is can... more is it is it enough you know to to be a basis for coalition because i just see like the the churning disagreement and the you know yeah, herding cats I, and, aspect of it there is a huge herding cats aspect to it right and you know the question of like are you who from the religious perspective you can explain the same thing it's actually much easier to make this point because you can say, are you, are you who God wants you to be? Did God make you to like sit on the couch and shoot heroin and play your PlayStation? And the answer is just clearly, fuck no. I don't know how you believe in any kind of God where you're like, <laughs> presumably there's a way. Um, but uh, that, would, that would require some theology with which I am not personally familiar, right? And, and so the... Um, the question of um, what does this sort of um, mean is like, um, yeah, it's it's like so to someone like Bronze Age pervert, you vitalism sort of means a kind of it means a self perfection. It means a pursuit of sort of physical and spiritual health. And to a trad path, 
I would argue they're also looking for maybe more spiritual than physical health. But yeah, physical also. And the um, the sense of those senses, I think, are sort of close enough that kind of my concept here is meant to incorporate both of them. And even that they mean different things, slightly different things for slightly different people is sort of unimportant next to the fact that they both have this complete rejection of decadence. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So I was just trying to see if, so you think a coalition on the basis of this, you know, kind of principled perspective on, on, you know, what it means to be alive is easier to do than to say, you know, an integralist state or something like that. Yeah, right, right, right. Because when you, when you sort of, when you imagine, I mean, you can certainly imagine an integralist state as sort of one of the realizations of this. But for me, sort of as a secular person, the principle is more important than the specifics. I think for a lot of tradcasts, you know, they were like, they would be like, well, an integralist Catholic state is very, very good, but an integralist Mormon state would be very, very bad. First of all, you're not going to convert all the Mormons to Catholicism or vice versa. So like these things are, unless you have a, basically a plan for, uh, you know, some way of for Mormons and Catholics to either have different countries or share the same country, you're not really getting, you're not really talking about something that has a real telos in any sense. And the, um, the, the sense in like the sense in which the, like, there's a sense in which basically both a Mormon perspective and a Catholic perspective and a Buddhist perspective and a Muslim perspective are sort of all aligned in sort of being sort of disgusted by the rotting of humanity. And that sense of being disgusted by the rotting of humanity is what I think of as vitalism. And that's a sort of, that's a basis for agreement, which I think all these factions can find. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I left the last two principles in the manifesto uh, to be the, the ones that I think are at least controversial. It's uh, in the perspective of knowing, you know, the, the Curtis Yarvin uh, canon. So absolutism, I think this argument's been made. That's probably one of the, the more um, famous arguments that you've made. Uh, there's no such thing as limited government. I feel like uh, I'm, I'm convinced. Um, yeah. And also realism. I think that's pretty uncontroversial though there there are yeah let me let me let me go through yeah let's 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 um you know we've probably used up most of our time here but let me sort of go through both of those principles really really quickly the idea that there's no such thing as limited government is like it's just the essence of political science for me it's summed up in the, the old parable the old question who watches the watchdogs and basically Whenever you're imagining a limited government, you're imagining a power that limits some other power. And the mistake that you're making is you're not thinking of that limiting power as a power. And so you might say, oh, we have limited government because we have the rule of law. 
what is the rule of law? Do the words leap off the text, you know, off the page and like, you know, hang, you know, the, those who break the law? No, judges and policemen hang those who break the law or don't hang them as the case may be. And when you imagine basically, say, for example, a judicial system as something that's above humanity and above human politics and basically you're like, oh, here's this power above politics. I'm like, well, you know who's above politics? The king, right? I mean, and, and indeed, in the traditional conception of law, um, the king is the chief judge, and the king is basically the Supreme Court, and that's how it used to work. And so the sense of basically you think that you've created limited government, but all you've done is you sort of created this kind of fractured government and, you know, people are then, you know, they're like, oh, checks and balances, balance of power. And it's like, you know, every time you, you try to create a balance of power, it always seems like you basically created a civil conflict in which one of those powers is going to defeat the other. The idea of like sort of a controlled conflict as a way of sort of stabilizing the sense of freedom or whatever, it's like, yeah, okay. You do have a lot of freedom in a civil war. I guess that's the reductio ad absurdum. You have the freedom to like loot. You know, I don't know. Like it just doesn't actually work and it hasn't actually worked. And, you know, there you can't really say there are multiple powers that check each other in the real American constitution today. And, um, and you know, to regard the American Supreme Court as anything more than a political organ is just like willful blindness, right? There's no superhuman quality about it. So, you know, the search for limited government is always sort of the search for the superhuman or the kind of some power that's above humanity. And it's like, well, if you wanted a power that was conceived as superhuman, really, you could have stuck with your kings and emperors, right? Because, you know, the idea that the king is just doing the will of God is not too dissimilar from the idea that the Supreme Court is just enforcing the law. It's this like, you know, um, just it's this artifice. And, you know, if you need an artifice, one artifice is good is as good as as another. But uh, obviously, I don't feel that I need an artifice. And this is why this sense of basically thinking of sovereignty as being conserved and, you know, you can't, uh, um, you can't eliminate power, you can only divide it, and is just basically, it's sort of the basis of a political science that actually makes sense and is not sort of the captive of a regime. And to think of the past sort of 250 or even 400 years of Anglo-American political thinking as sort of captive to a certain kind of regime in the same sense that Marxist-Leninist political science was captive to a certain regime and all became completely irrelevant once that regime ended is I think the right way to think about this idea of limited government. It's fundamentally an illusion and a trap. Um, and since you, I guess, probably agree with that, there's no, there's no sense in talking about it. And then um, I think realism is just, you know, sort of, it's, it's I, I hate using sort of 
terms that are self-aggrandizing in that sense. It's like, they're, you know, they're rationalists, like we're rationalists and, and you're not, we're realistic and you're not. Uh, perceiving reality objectively is very, very difficult. And it's like a sort of wavered between realism and revisionism for that term. Revisionism has sort of specific, you know, it's a very legitimate historical term, but, um, you know, it sends you in directions that don't really work. Um, but basically the willingness to look at reality anew is what I mean by realism. And the willingness to basically, it's a very radical perspective in the sort of etymological sense of the term. You're basically expressing a willingness to say, okay, like, you have to acknowledge that you're living in a regime that produces many things that are commonly believed that are just not true. And if you basically admit that the power of this regime approaches this Orwellian level in which even the best and smartest people can come to believe things that are just obviously not true, which was absolutely the case in the Soviet Union, is absolutely the case in the Third Reich, and it's absolutely the case for us. And to think that we're sort of above the need to basically look at ourselves and say, you know, is what we consider objective reality, can we check this? Do we actually, you know, believe what is true about things like history and biology and really basic stuff where political science, certainly, where like the perspective of the best and the brightest can be wrong. And we know that this must be true because even if we just confine ourselves to a very narrow slice of human existence, we have to say that the people at Harvard in 1900 or 1950 at least were just as smart as the people at Harvard in 2020. And they disagree with each other on the nature of reality rather violently and rather intensely. And the sense of this being like, um, um, like it's just logic that you look at it and you say, well, if Harvard of 2020 disagrees that vehemently with Harvard of 1950, they can't both be right. Either one of them is out to lunch or even worse, they're both out to lunch or they're both out to lunch in different ways. And having the courage to ask those kinds of questions and to ask those questions in a really serious and deep and sincere way, not in a kind of a polemical, oh, what can I throw at the wall and make stick, is I think something that has to be a really important part of the dissident right. And it's really one of the things that I really hate most about the experience of being a dissident is, or the, you know, the, the like, one of the most pernicious qualities is that when you see basically, when you become conscious that you're living in a society with a low standard of truth, and then you see the same low standard applied by the enemies of this low standard, and I'm like, no, that's not the way to do it. You actually have to have much higher the way you develop the confidence that you have the right to rule, which is the only way to win anything, um, 
it involves a knowledge that you're actually much better. And you actually have um, much more of a sense of what is right. And you're just much more confident that you have criticized yourself completely. And before your opponents even show up to the debate, you have anticipated everything that they have to say. And like, that's like that sense of ruthless self-criticism and ruthless criticism of the other, of course, which comes along with this is really what I mean by realism. And I always like, you know, COVID has sort of been such a perfect demonstration of this because we've been exposed to so much sort of like, I mean, the official story flipping, turning on a dime in like March of 2020 um, is something that no one sort of should ever forget where they're like telling you to lick doorknobs in February and in April, the world is ending. <laughs> and um, like, that's, that's hard. That level of error is hard to forget. But that level of error sort of doesn't excuse that level of error in the opponents of the system. Like, you really have to have your head screwed on tight. And, you know, COVID in specific, because it's sort of so, it's not the plague that ends the world. And it is this kind of nasty disease is, um, which I think I might have right now, um, is like, but it's also, it's manageable. It's a thing, right? You know, that um, sense of, you know, here nature, well, or, you know, uh, some lab, probably some lab, but uh, reality has sort of thrown us this kind of soft pitch down the middle. And so sort of understanding it in a way where you as a dissident are not forming your beliefs by saying, what is the government saying? I'm going to believe the opposite. That is a terrible way to form any kind of belief. When Once you're like, okay, I can't trust the powers that be, you're like, okay, how do I think for myself accurately and clearly without trusting the powers that be. And very often, perhaps even most of the time, doing that right is going to give you the same answer as the powers that be. And that is completely and utterly fine and normal. And like having the confidence to agree with the powers that be is like actually a really big part of realism. Mm -hmm. Because you're just like, you know, Hunter S. Thompson had this great line. It's like, you know, even a blind pig finds an acorn every once in a while. You shouldn't be surprised when the blind pig finds an acorn. Actually, the pig is, you know, even, isn't even blind. It just should be wearing glasses, you know. But, but it, will, it will get quite a few acorns. And if you have the confidence to acknowledge that the pig finds a lot of acorns, then you also have the confidence to find the acorns of truth of your own that this pig is never going to find. Yes, And that's sort of what I mean, that sort of unrelenting devotion to living in reality and exiting this world of illusion is what I mean by realism. I don't think anyone can really argue with that stance, but many people don't sort of emphasize it in that way. Yes, I think people underestimate how um, systematic the, the failure modes are for uh, for the regime. You can observe patterns and and how it is wrong. Yeah, and and once you understand the systematic failure modes, you also understand what it's going to get right. And 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 you know when the regime, when you're a dissident, and when the regime is right and you are wrong, you have committed a really grievous error. 
it's an error that is really, really, really hard to recover from because you've trapped yourself in a very weak position because power and truth are on the same side and they're both against you and you're fucked. And so basically, if you want to, the only thing that a dissident can do is, is, you know, oppose truth to power. And if they get it and you don't, like, just you're fucked. Don't fight them in that way. Basically, fight them in the places where you have the truth and they don't. Yeah, yeah. We, we can't afford to be wrong. We can't afford to be wrong. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for, for taking us through the manifesto. There's much more flesh <laughs> on the bones now. I, I, love, think, uh, I, I love the word manifesto. I mean, I hate the word manifesto, but fine. We'll call it I'm, manifesto. I'm, I'm saying it ironically. Just to... Of course. Of course. <laughs> um, of course. I, every bit of irony has a little bit of truth in it. That you know, That's when it cuts the most savagely. Um, um, and I, I want to, before I let you go... Uh, to handle your, your COVID situation. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I want to ask you the question of the show again. If you have anyone that just comes to mind uh, that you think is a, a radical thinker, a subversive thinker, underrated, that people should maybe read or look into uh, that you, you know, maybe haven't mentioned yet. That I maybe haven't mentioned in a while. Um, yeah. Let me think for a moment. I haven't spent enough time promoting Albert J. Nock lately. And Albert J. Nock is one of these writers who's, you know, libertarians sometimes read his book, Our Enemy, the State, which is not a bad book. Um, but really, his book, Memoirs of a Superfluous Man, is his, is his best work, and as, as well as many of his essays. I mean, he was a contemporary of Mencken and edited a magazine, The Freeman, which was sort of a peer of the American Mercury and the New Republic and the Nation and the American Mercury and the Freeman have disappeared and been forgotten. But at the time, I mean, he, of course, like many of these, these dissidents started out as a liberal. Uh, Memoirs of a Superfluous Man is a wonderful book. I believe it's free online. And um, I should actually probably reread it myself now, now that you mentioned that. Perfect. Uh, yeah, excellent. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for, for this lovely interview. And, um, I look forward to seeing it on the beautiful... Will it be paywalled? Will it not be paywalled? Um, all my stuff is paywalled for a while and then it, it all perfect. goes out to, to everyone. Perfect. That's perfect. Uh, the time perfect. grift, I call it. It's, the uh, time it's a gentle grift. grift. It's a gentle grift. <laughs> that, that is absolutely the best way to grift. All right, Alex, thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much. And yes, I want people to also go to Gray Mirror. Graymirror.substack.com. Yes. That's gray with man. an A with yes. the American way. Uh, subscribe if you have the money or read for free if you don't. And um, I try to minimize the paywall, but it is in there because... Um, because you know, why not? People should support dissident thought. Exactly. That is the, that is the way to express your power. Support, support uh, those who are working for you. Uh, you know, um, pay your party dues. What can I say? <laughs> All right, Alex. It's Excellent. been a pleasure as always. And I look forward to doing this again sometime. Take care. Thank you so much. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 